So eventually I end up going into law school in 2005. And that was the same year that the decision of the Cheryl versus the Oneida Nation case that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had written was decided. At the time, I didn't really fully realize the impact or the implications of that case, other than knowing that it closed the door for all Haudenosaunee land claims through the court systems forevermore. This is The Land You're On, acknowledging the Haudenosaunee, interviews and conversations with indigenous community members and allies, providing the context and perspective needed to understand the complicated history of the land you're on. There are roughly 150 monuments to Christopher Columbus in the United States. The statue in Syracuse, New York, has stood over Columbus Circle since 1934. Onondaga social worker Danielle Smith talked about that statue on a hike up Blue Mountain in the Adirondacks. The statue, it's on like a big platform and then Columbus stands there at his feet around each corner of the platform. There's just heads of indigenous men, basically. It's just their heads. And then he stands there, he's facing the church and to his back is the courthouse. So basically how a lot of us interpret that is going all the way back to the doctrine of discovery. Basically that's what Columbus and all the other explorers sailed on and that was like their justification for coming to take over these lands, colonize them, conquer them, was the doctrine of discovery. My name is Michelle Shenandoah. I'm a member of the Oneida Nation Wolf Clan, and my people call me Galuja Nuez, which means she is fond of the sky. The doctrine of discovery was created in 1493 by the Pope. It's a papal bull that allowed for all of these explorers, including Christopher Columbus, to be able to come to the Americas and to claim the lands and all of the resources and materials that they could possibly gather and bring back to Europe and claim this all in the name of the crowns of Europe. And the basis for the doctrine of discovery is rooted in Christianity in that it was declared that the indigenous people of the Americas, because they were not Christians, therefore did not have a soul and therefore basically did not exist in the eyes of these crowns. And therefore these explorers could claim stake to the land for these countries of Europe and they could kill and rape and enslave the indigenous peoples, do whatever they liked. And the basis is called terra nullis, which means lands that are empty. And so they were just free for the taking. 
And so the doctrine of discovery becomes the basis in the law for how the United States, and including Canada, and I'm sure many of the other colonizing countries throughout the Americas, to claim stake to all of the land contained within their territories. So the very first land case before the United States is the Johnson v. McIntosh case, which was decided in 1843. And that case cites the Doctrine of Discovery as the basis for United States claim to all the lands therein. In law, there is a rule of precedent. And so something that was previously decided becomes the law throughout time until it's changed. Most people don't know the law. Most people don't read this case law and realize the impacts. But really, it has such a huge influence. How does this precedent, how does that impact policy? How does it impact the educational system? And then really ultimately what happens is it becomes the way society views the world. It's rooted in the law. It's rooted in the way that this society functions because that's how the laws are built. And, you know, as these early settlers thought, okay, great, I've got a right to come and take this land. And, you know, all the natives were pushed off and the land was burnt and scorched. And now I just go in and claim the space. Well, what's I'm going to do? And I'm going to tell my son and he's going to tell his son. And we are going to continue this very patriarchal system that is really centered around oppressing a people. And, well, they're gone. You know, they're now off over this way or we've pushed them out or... And so you can see this invisibilization and, and diminishing and, and disappearance of indigenous peoples. And that's what's embedded in mainstream thinking and culture and laws and educational systems. You can see it reflected in the history books. It's there. It's what we've all been taught. It's what even I was taught. I went to public school. Yeah. I remember in the seventh grade opening my social studies book and I remember there seeing this black and white photo of indigenous people out on the plains, the Lakota people, and I thought, oh great, yay, we're gonna learn about, you know, natives now. And out of this super thick three-inch book made for seventh graders, there were like two pages dedicated to indigenous people. And I wasn't in there. The Haudenosaunee people weren't in there. There was nothing that reflected me or my experience. It was just kind of this vanishing Indian out on the Western Plains. Syracuse University Ombuds, Neil Pallas. We've done historical presentations about things like uh, the doctrine of discovery and its current legal impacts that are active today in the United States. We kind of teach people about what these things were in history and how they impact indigenous people today. I know obviously I don't claim to be an expert. I am a social worker, but you know, what I do know of human behavior is that especially when someone is being critical of us, our values, our thoughts, the first response instead of being reflective and trying to, you know, think about what the other person's saying is to be defensive. 
a lot of the supporters of the statue, they just go right into like defense mode and then they only repeat what they've heard, not even checking to see if it's legitimate and if there's facts behind it and looking at the support that we have as indigenous people and people who are against, you know, idolizing Columbus. And even when we have brought those facts to people, they just straight up deny it. We were explaining to them how the legacy of Columbus, how the doctrine of discovery, how that has impacted all of our people, the message that that sends to our children. That message that's sent to our children is that they're not important, that they don't matter, really that like we're no longer here. We talked with Danielle's daughter, Adabria, atop the windy summit of Blue Mountain. My name is Unchiahne and Adabria Edwards. I'm Hot Clan. I'm 11 years old and I'm from Onondaga Nation. I have learned things, a lot of things from my mother, or my whole family, actually. I learned from my grandpa the old Indian tricks. I learned from my other grandpa how to play guitar. I learned from my dad how to fix things, how to use my head. <laughs> and then I learned from my mom how to play softball, how to do math from my grandma how to clean, and then from my other grandpa how to mow the lawn. I learned from my cat not to pick her up when she's mad at me. I've learned from my dogs, don't let them off her leash. I would describe my mom as she is very smart and she tries to help other people with their problems, because she grew up with problems that nobody helped her to fix. And she thought like things were right when they really weren't. So she wants to help kids figure out, like help them talk about stuff because she didn't really get to talk about stuff when she was little. And then with the Christopher Columbus thingy, um, she does that to take it down because that's like it's kind of messed up about how they put that there. I guess what I want to know is what you know. Just say it. You, yeah. All right. Thank you. How do you hope things will be different for you when you're your mom's age? Um, I hope that the the racism is over and the Christopher Columbus statue will be down and all the other ones and we will get our line back. Syracuse Mayor Ben Walsh pledged to remove the statue on October 9th, 2020 and to convert this space into one that honors Italian heritage as well as providing acknowledgement of indigenous and other marginalized people. The decision has been contested ever since. In March of 2022, State Supreme Court Judge Gerard Neary ordered Walsh and the city not to remove the statue, saying the city has no legal right to alter the piece of art known as the Christopher Columbus Monument.
When I was a young girl, I was very much inspired by the movement afoot that happened generations before me, which was really rooted in the land claim case of the Oneida people, which my great-grandmother had a very large part in bringing it before the Supreme Court. Her name was Mary Cornelius Winder. She was also Oneida Wolf Clan. We're a matrilineal culture, and so I too am Oneida uh, Wolf Clan like her. The Supreme Court had declared that the Oneidas had a legitimate claim to lands that were stolen by New York State and sent it back to New York to basically negotiate and settle with us. And through the course of 40, 50 years, we never really quite settled on that because New York State wanted to pay money to us. And we said, this is never about money. So we didn't want to take money or the little amount of money even that they were offering. So when I was about 10 years old, attending these meetings about land claim cases, I would go with my grandmother and my mom. My grandmother was a clan mother for the Oneidas and my mom, a faith keeper. And I would just sit there and listen and take a nap under the bench or whatever. <laughs> and one thing that I had noticed was that our people sort of always seemed to be embroiled in a really good argument about something and this group wanting to be right or that person wanting to be right. And when the attorneys would walk into the room, all of a sudden the entire room would get quiet and everybody would listen. And I thought, wow, as a kid, that had a really big impression upon me. And I realized that the attorneys seemed to really be responsible for what would happen in the courts and constructing, you know, whatever the case may be. And so at 10 years old, I said, I want to be an attorney and I want to work on our land claim case. So eventually I end up going into law school in 2005. And that was the same year that the decision of the Cheryl versus the Oneida Nation case was decided. At the time, I didn't really fully realize the impact or the implications or long-term implications of that case, other than knowing that it closed the door for all Haudenosaunee land claims through the court systems forevermore. In 1997 and 98, the Oneida Nation purchased land in an attempt to restore some of their aboriginal homelands, ceded through a series of federal and state treaties two centuries earlier. In the U.S., the federal government holds native lands in trust for the individual nations. As such, the Supreme Court ruled that lands purchased by the Oneida Nation in the present day were not eligible for tribal sovereignty. This defined the lands as taxable and dealt a serious blow to these nations intent on reclaiming their traditional lands and holding them as sovereign. In 2005, essentially, Ruth Bader Ginsburg breathed life back into the doctrine of discovery. Once I realized that I was really hurt and very angry about it, but now, all these years later, I'm actually really glad that she did that. While that was really devastating to Haudenosaunee and our land claims through the courts, what she did essentially was to show the world 
that that's still valid law. Because as indigenous peoples, we would have a harder time proving the impacts of that doctrine today. But here it's cited in 2005. So she makes it a little bit easier today for us to be able to show, look at this very racist, genocidal law that's still on the books. Danielle Smith on the doctrine's legacy in present-day Syracuse. The whole point of the doctrine of discovery was to assimilate us or just get rid of us. A lot of people that are in support of it, you know, I think it just comes to basically like them not having the education and not having people around them that are challenging them. That's the story that your family's telling you, but have you actually looked into it, you know? Another thing we would get is they were saying that when the statue went up, you know, Italian-Americans were being oppressed during that time, which, yeah, we recognize that. We're not denying that. But at the same time, Italian-Americans right now are no longer being oppressed. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, I guess it's hard for other people to empathize. And I, I really think that stems a lot from just being defensive and then also just not really having the right coping skills to work through things. Yeah. You know, you just fight, 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 and you don't ever just sit back and think critically about what's being told to you. You have to create the space to dialogue. That's a primary for the whole process. And you have to create the space to be willing to listen. I'm thankful for people when they're willing to listen to me, but I'm equally excited to listen to them. I want to hear what they have to say. I want to hear their perspective so I can understand where they're coming from. And I have compassion for them. I have compassion for the Italian-American who looks at their history in this country and says, Columbus is fantastic. Yes, but so is Sylvester Stallone. Can we come up with a celebratory Italian person in the middle somewhere that you can celebrate? that we can all agree is great for you because Columbus doesn't represent the same thing for us that it does for you. It represents something very painful. My name's Ethan Tayo. I am from Akwazase on the U.S. side. I am Wolf Clan, and I've been at SU for seven years now. Now a PhD candidate, Ethan's involvement in the discussion surrounding the Columbus statue includes a silent protest of his own. I have a rooftop garden, another experiment that landlords let me get away with. I grew corn <laughs> six stories in the air in the middle of downtown. And for me, because I live right next to Columbus Circle in downtown Syracuse, that was another situation that I was a part of, was trying to figure out how can we rethink that space in more of a culturally appropriate but also communal sense. And that's still a work in progress. So still, until that comes down, I'm just going to keep planting our seeds on the land there. After spending a significant amount of time in New York City, going to law school, I moved back home. I was a single mom. I started working in a law firm as a law clerk. And one of our chiefs, Chief Irving Paulus Jr. Geha, called me to come and meet with him. And I have to say, I was really, really sort of scared. Like, oh no, what did I do? I thought I was in trouble. And I went to go visit with him. And if 
anybody has ever spent time with him or time with our elders, you'll know that those visits are three, four, five hours long sometimes. And so I remember the first time that I went to go see him, very classic, is really testing, who are you? What's your character? What are you, what are you made of? And the funny part is, is that Irv was also very good friends with my family. For generations, our families have known each other, but he didn't know me. And here I am, you know, this young Oneida woman, just coming out of law school, right? So I have this Western legal education. And we sat, we talked, I listened, and answered a lot of his questions. And after spending several hours talking with him, he said, okay, he says, I want you to come back next week and every week after. And he says, and I'm going to teach you what I know about our treaties. I thought, wow, okay. <laughs> I did not see that coming here. I thought I was in trouble. But one of the things that he did was he investigated a question that his wife had, which had to do with taxation. And why is it that employees who were native, living on Onondaga Nation territory and working within the school that was in the territory, why should they be taxed? And so that issue he brought before the Onondaga Council, and it was agreed that you know they would investigate this and ultimately, it ended up being that Irv went to the courts and fought for our tax-exempt status. And to this day, as a Haudenosaunee person, we have tax exemption from sales, or if you live and work you know, on our territories, then you are also exempt from New York State taxes. And really, he went in there just armed with the knowledge of our treaties and who we are. He didn't have a legal education, but he went in there and he fought and he won. And Syracuse University gave him an honorary degree in law for this. Pretty amazing, yeah. So to have been mentored or call him a teacher, really, I wish that we could have had more time. And I wish that I would have thought back then to turn on the audio, that I could go back and listen to those conversations and listen to the things that he shared with me. But I took copious notes <laughs> and really just appreciated and valued that time. He was in a wheelchair the whole time. He had had a stroke and it really impacted his ability to, to walk. And um, he stood up one day and he gave me a hug. And he said, you'll forever be my friend. Yeah. So I'm just really, really grateful for that time that we were able to spend together and for me to be able to learn from him. And little did I know that he would become my father-in-law. It's just really, really special. Something extraordinary. Mm -hmm. The Land You're On is a production of Access Audio, a storytelling initiative of the Special Collections Research Center at the Syracuse University Libraries. Produced by Brett Barry, B. 
Bianca Kaela Breed, Neil Paulus, and Jim O'Connor. Post production by Silver Hollow Audio. The Land You're On is distributed by WAER Podcasts, available at WAER.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Production help for The Land You're On from Cal Doherty and Kevin Claus. For further information, reading, and educational resources, visit The Land You're On Research Guide, available at soundbeat.org.